So until now, Paul has been doing a good job of discussing sin as an issue of worship. We've talked about that over the past four weeks, where, where sin is an issue of worship. And last week, we got into the sticky discussion of, is sin a moral issue or a religious issue? And we had it out, and we, and we were discussing all of these points about whether it's a moral issue or a religious issue, and whether it's both, or whether it's neither, or whatever. What's going on with this topic of sin? And Paul, in Romans, has said that God has given the culture up to various um, various depravities, various ways that the world is just breaking down. They're all breaking down the social fabric of the world. Everything that he listed works against the, the social fabric of the world. And so as a culture, they didn't see fit to acknowledge God or glorify God, so God just went, fine, go your own way. And you're going to go down all of these roads because you don't have an authority that's telling you not to go down these roads. This is just where you're going to go. And, uh, and, and so I want us to make an observation that the first five chapters of Romans has been, has been really building that case, that sin is a religious problem. People not worshiping God has outcomes that are not desirable. In Romans 6, Paul is taking us through the next section, Romans 6, 7, and 8, which is now that culture has been affected by all this evil, and you are in culture, how is it going to affect you personally? How is all of this going to affect you in your everyday life? How does it affect you? So I'm going to read Romans 6. Uh, 13 to 18. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. See that baptism thing there? Your, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do, not, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to a standard of teaching to which you were committed. Having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. So how much, and this is, I just want to hear your opinion on this. How much do you think cultural values impact the way you live your life day to day? How much do you think that, a, that the culture's values around you impact your day to day? What they say is important. What they say is good. How does it impact you? What, what effect does that have on you? Are, you? are you a part of it? I just want to hear... What, what you guys are thinking on that, because, because we've talked about culture, 
in, in Romans 1, 2, 3, and a little bit in 4 and 5. We talked about that, and, and, and Paul is starting to say, how does it affect you? So I'm asking you, how does cultural values impact the way you live your life day to day? A lot of times, a lot of times people, we don't actually even recognize how much or, or what specifically is affected. So maybe that's some of the question. Um, not just how much, but, but what are some examples of how culture affects the way we think? Paul's bringing out the idea of slavery in this. And, and he's doing it on purpose because he's talking to a Jewish people and, or newly converted people. And the main story of the Jews is this. You were once slaves in Egypt, and God came and set you free to go to the promised land. And in the first century, the Jewish people were again subservient to the Roman Empire. You were still under oppressive rule. And so God is, God is working in this. And, and so the promise of, of freedom for slavery is the same promise. You have been enslaved to sin. And from the Jewish perspective, they still needed to be freed from sin. And God's revelation of Torah made them aware of their sinfulness. And no matter how hard they tried, they couldn't fulfill the law and overcome the slavery of the law on their own. They recognized that even though they would give offerings and, and enter in, they, wouldn't be, they couldn't get free from the sin. They needed purification, and the sin must be defeated. And so most Jews would have agreed with Paul at this point. There is a sin problem that needs to be dealt with. And I think we still agree with that as well. It still applies to us. Um, we who've grown up in the church, often like the Jewish people, we're aware of our sins, and so what we do is we try to get rid of them. That's good, right? We try not to sin. Try harder. <laughs> um, you know, that, that's, that's a big deal. We, we, we try to get rid of our sins. So Romans 6, 13 to 14, and then I'm going to check on Slack because I see lots of responses here. Keep on going with it, though. I see some people are still typing. Romans 6, 13 to 14. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but grace. So how, how does cultural values affect us? We're all impacted in some ways. Um, the culture we live in impacts everything. And I, I think that even though, you know, that's still very vague, I think it's a good starting place because we have to open our eyes that the culture we live in impacts everything. I go to work and I earn money so I can buy the things that I think I need or I value. That is a cultural impact. In fact, the mechanism we use is cultural. It's not always been like that. The idea of going to work to, rate, to get money isn't actually something that has been there for a long time. I think the first time we started using a centralized currency was with the Spanish, um, the Spanish gold. And, and we centralized currency back in the 1500s. It's only 500 years old that we're using centralized currency. You get money to buy things. You know, in Rome they had currency, but they still used the bartering system a lot. So we, we, it's a cultural value. Um, 
ethos of materialism. Again, touching on that in our in our spending. We're inherently social creatures and we want to fit in. So while we might not always follow cultural values, at least I feel the strain of following God or acting godly manner as it requires us to go against the grain of the norm, cause us to be looked at differently by the world at large. Not a bad thing, but it's difficult. This is so true. What a great observation here. That we are social creatures. We want to fit in. And this affects all of us. We just sent 20 kids downstairs into kids' ministry. Every single one of those kids feels the tension between what it means to be Christian and what it means to live in the world. They're aware of it. Every single one of them is aware of it. And, and we want to fit in. And so how do, we, how do we fit in because we're social creatures? That's affecting our, the way we live our life. I try to stand up for kingdom values, but I find myself doing many things our modern culture says are okay. <laughs> Interesting. Shopping on Sundays. What do you mean bad to have the stores open on Sundays? Well, guess what? There are people that, that, that would like to be at church today but can't be at church today because they're stuck at work. That's a big deal. It's a cultural value that we have. Um, Paul uses the term slave culturally, and that's a sensitive issue, positively and negatively. And, and even in our culture, the word slave, the word slave, like the idea of slavery is so offensive to us. Like, what do you mean, slaves? And we're going to get into that too. So the verse that I just read, do not present your members as sin to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, is really important because it, it gives us a hint right there what's, what's being talked about. Do not present your members. It's temple worship language. This is, this is about temple worship. When you present, when you go to the temple... You present your gift. You present your body. You present your worship. You go to the temple with something to present. And, and in, in, the, um, in the Jewish faith, you would go to the temple and present your offerings to God, your grain offerings, your, your, your meat offerings, um, and, and you would go and present them and they would be slaughtered for you or they would be, they would be burnt and that would be the way that you would know that you were good with God. It was a practice that you did that brought you into, I am part of God's community. I am under God's authority. So Paul is saying, don't present your members at the temple of the sins, the cultural values, the things that go against God's ways. Don't present your, don't worship the wrong thing. He's saying, he's saying, adjust what you present your members to. In, in an excellent book called You Are What You Love, James K.A. Smith, I don't know why he insists on the K.A., but he does. James K.A. Smith says, our loves acquire direction and orientation because we're immersed over time in our practices and our rituals, what we call liturgies that effectively and viscerally train our desires. So just as our habits themselves are unconscious, operating under the hood, it's also the case the process of habituation can be unconscious and covert. It's especially true when we don't recognize cultural practices as liturgy. Okay, what did he just say there? That was a big mouthful. So what he's saying here is, is he is saying... He's saying, 
if we go about our day-to-day, he, he goes on in the chapter and he talks about, he talks about the liturgy of shopping. We go about our day-to-day and we go to the great temple, which for us would be Vaughn Mills or Upper Canada Mall. And we go to the great temple and we see the oversized images of the ideal. The pictures in the window, the mannequins, the, the everything that we see that we need that promises and implies our happiness. And we don't even recognize that that's a liturgical practice. That, that it's informing our desires. It's shaping what we want. It's allowing us to, to define, you actually want that new black dress at that store called Grace and Envy. Trust me, you can go there and see it's all in the window. Um, this shapes our desires. You didn't know that you wanted that black dress, guys. <laughs> but now you want it. Now you're like, that's exactly what I want. I didn't know that I wanted a Chris Hadfield book called, uh, I don't know, I'm reading it now though. It's some story about, you know, KGB agents and stuff like this trying to get into space and the space race. And it was lots of fun, or is lots of fun. I didn't even know I wanted the book until my desires were shaped by walking too close to a store and went, ooh, I want that book. And I bought it. These are liturgical practices. The everyday habits that we have shape our desires. So a couple of people have asked about what member is. A member is a part of a body. Um, It is uh, generally like a hand or a limb. It's the same type of thing that Jesus said when he said, you know, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That would be a member. Um, And so that that would be where it is. Someone also said that cultural values are ever-changing and and potentially dangerous, like navigating Georgian Bay with an old chart. When the water level drops four feet, all kinds of new rocks and hazards can start to sink your boat. That genuinely comes from a boat enthusiast. But it's true. It's a a great image. Um, So we have have this this piece where, where we are being shaped by secular liturgies. So here's the question. What are some of the secular liturgies that shape your desires or shape our desires? I talked about them all, but maybe there are a couple other ones. Maybe there's some practices that you do that inform, and maybe you guys can think about this right now. What are some, what are some secular liturgies that shape your desires? Our culture, we, we think that rationality is the center. We've been taught this for years. Rationality is the center of the human person. Our mind is, is what is driving us. Psychology would actually say that our primary or- orientation in the world is, is defined viscerally. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called Blink, and he said that, that we bring in so much information that our Um, that our secondary mind actually makes decisions for us before our conscious does. We're already informed. Our rationality is is our primary mind, yes, but 
our secondary mind is actually making decisions for us that we're not even aware of. Our visceral reactions to people, places, things, tastes, they're all just informed all over the place by other things. So what are some of the secular liturgies that shape our desires? Um, we have already created a liturgy for life. You have already got your habits in place, your, your rhythms in place. And by God's grace, I hope you continue to see the importance of daily spiritual practices. By God's grace, I hope you continue to see the, daily, the weekly importance of attending church in community. Why? Because these things shape our values. They shape our desires. And when we don't do them, our desires get shaped by the cultural defaults. So, so this is purely your practices. The things that you do every single week are the things that are actually making up your mind for what you will do in the future. This is why business gurus talk so much about building healthy habits, because they know that if you build healthy habits, you will be successful according to the values that you're set out by. As spiritual people, people who are alive by the Spirit of God, it becomes vital for us to say healthy spiritual habits are going to define our person. And that is what Paul's getting at here in Romans 6. You worship what you love. Your life revolves around it. Your habits are ingrained in it. You're enslaved in Egypt until you're set free. So how do you get to freedom? Before we get to that, I want to answer the question. I want to hear what you guys said. What are the secular liturgies that shape your desire? Um, wow, this is great. You guys have some awesome stuff. Music lyrics. I didn't expect that one. Music lyrics do shape your desire. And honestly, the, the, the atrocity that modern music has brought out in lyrics, it's awful. Absolutely awful. And I, I don't mean to just, you know, stand on a pulpit and just be like, bad secular music. I mean like vulgar stuff that I'm just like, I didn't used to be able to be shocked by stuff. I was a youth pastor for many years. I could listen to a lot of garbage and just be like, okay, that's what the youth are listening to. Now I listen to it and I, I just, I want to vomit. Like it's that bad. And I mean, words that I, I just will not repeat. And I'm like, no, but music. Great, great thing. Um, find your own truth. Yeah. Again, because I don't see fit to acknowledge God, we define our own truth. Instagram is affecting our desires. Yes. Yes, in such a big way. You do, you do boo. You do, okay. You do you or you do boo? I'm not sure. Maybe there's a newer thing. Um, <laughs> TV watching. Fashion trends. Fashion trends are, are a big deal. Absolutely. I love, I love fashion. I know it doesn't show, but I love fashion. And, and it's a big deal. Our Western culture has foundations in Christianity with values of humans' rights and diversity and inclusion. It absolutely does. And then sometimes it informs 
it, it pushes even beyond what the Christian ideas of human rights are and, and, and recenters. There's a huge conversation there about, about how do you have human rights if there isn't a higher place to appeal to? That's a philosophical question, though, but it's really important. Um, there could be a huge threat on that one. Uh, American dream affects our understanding of Instagram and Facebook, and I want to travel and go on cruises. That's not a knock. I mean, maybe it is. Um, I have rock-hard abs. I do, actually. Never mind. Um, and have all my investments go well. Self-care movements could be toxic. They influence your desires. Yeah. So there are a lot of things. Um, my, somebody says schools affect our desires, and they totally do. They totally do. So 1 John 2.15 says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Paul's saying, don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Don't pursue the, your validation through the liturgies of the world. The world is going to say, you did great because you made so much money. Well, whoop de do. What happens when money doesn't retain its value? Kind of the world we're walking into. Oh, you did wonderful because, because you look so good and you drive a really sweet looking car. Great. What did that do for your relationships? You did so well because you're such a good, attentive parent and you never get your kid in any trouble. Okay, and how did that work out for your child? So there are these things that culture is going to prop you up and say, aspire to these goals. And our Christian liturgy says, aspire to the goal of right worship, and everything else will fall into place. Matthew 6, 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and everything else will come into place. Do you like how I used King James and paraphrased in the exact same verse? Changing what you worship or changing your worship practices sets you free. This is how we get to freedom. It impacts how you live your everyday life. The promise of Paul says if you change what you worship, you will gain the promised land. Freedom from death to life. Uh, six. 13 and 14, Romans 6, 13 and 14. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, your members to God as instruments for righteousness, so that sin will have no more dominion over you, since you're not under law but under grace. You switch what you worship and you say, I'm going to present my members to God. I am going to worship God. That's what's going to influence my decisions. That's what's going to influence my validity. That's what's going to drive me forward. I'm worshiping God and God alone. When we present ourselves to God, sin will have no more dominion over you. The word dominion is, is another word for lordship. For lordship. And so this is what will be freed from. You will be free from the lordship of sin and you will present yourself to God. When we take action and faithfully participate in presenting our bodies to God, we actively change what we serve. When 
We're talking about Jesus being Lord past few weeks, and it can come across as you have to obey Jesus 100% of the time or your risk of not having Jesus Lord enough. But that just creates another form of self-righteousness. Paul's saying something way more powerful. He's saying when you worship and present your body to God, sin and those sinful desires don't have authority over you anymore. Think about that. Have you ever been in a place where you felt like you just, you didn't want to sin, but it felt like you needed to? There was something other driving you towards that, pushing you towards it. When we were younger, we used to call it peer pressure. When we're older, we call it, we call it desires, materialism, all these other things. They push you towards things. doesn't have authority to speak to you anymore. Your Instagram post does not have authority to speak to your values anymore. When you worship right, the music lyrics that you listen to do not have the authority to inform your values anymore. Your values shift. So someone just asked, so if I just curb my behavior, then sin has no authority in me. No. When you worship God above all else, put yourself in a place of constant spiritual practice and and saying daily, this is what's going to set my values. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to be with Christian community. I'm going to go to church. They seem so meaningless, but they change your life. They change your life. So what's more important for you? Stopping sin by behavioral modification or starting to pray? Don't present your members to sin any longer. That seems important. But present yourself to God. Oh, so I should pray more. What's more important in this? What's more important? Stopping your sin or starting to pray? Paul brings us back to the Egypt picture again by talking about slavery. When you worship wrong, you find yourself not having a moral compass. When you get your worship right, you find yourself with a new Lord. Jesus is Lord, and it means you're going to be set free from the slavery of sin. Someone said, I listened to Promise Church thingy on Spotify. Really good to shape my values in life of faith. Someone says, you stop your sin when you pray. It changes your hearts and your thoughts. See, your behaviors are not a result of your willpower. They're an outcome of your worship. Let me say that again. Your behaviors are not a result of your willpower. They are the outcome of your worship. If you have a behavior that is unbecoming of what it is to be a Christ follower, it's an outcome of what you're worshiping. You can't just stop that behavior. You need to adjust your worship. Anyone with a shopping addiction knows that they're not free from the interest they pay on their credit cards. Right? Anyone who loves their work too much, they're not free to just simply walk away from work to take care of their family needs or go to church because your boss needs you. 
Anyone who loves their car knows that they're not free to eat french fries while driving because of the grease it will, it will leave on the steering wheel. I'm not wrong. Your behaviors are, are affected not by your willpower. That's why when you want to stop smoking, you can't just want to stop smoking. They're affected by what you worship. You have a new Lord. You have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you've been committed. It means that when you present yourself to God, a new liturgy, a new standard of teaching has been given to you and you're committed to it now. And Paul takes it one step further. Having been set free from sin, you've become a slave to righteousness. You have the freedom to choose who you worship. You have the freedom to choose what you worship, but you will always worship something. Always. And so what are you going to worship? That's what Paul's saying. How do you get affected in this? If you are slaves to the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. He's gone to great pains to say all cultures being given over to all types of sin because they didn't see fit to acknowledge God. He expanded his idea and said, we're all slaves to what we worship. Even the secular rituals we do every day inform our worship. And now you have the freedom from slavery because you have the power and the responsibility to change what you worship. Present your bodies to God. Worship God. When you do that, your behavior changes. So the question a lot of people are saying are saying that that. Um, that you need to pray. You know, someone says when you pray, you connect to God. You're moved and changed by the Holy Spirit to do God's will. You don't feel like sinning anymore and you become more conscious about what makes the Lord sad. Absolutely. To find the root cause of your sin, you need to get back to God. Yes. And someone begged the question, how do I get better at praying? I'm going to just answer that one really, really simple Turn your heart attention to God. And what it means is, I don't care where you are, you could be driving in terrible traffic through a snowstorm, and you can turn your heart to God and say, God, what do you want to do with my life? God, how can I honor you? God, what would you have me change in my life? That's a simple prayer. Or you can do this. God, I'm so freaking angry at... And just let God know the conscious decision to shift your focus and say, I'm going to be God-centered rather than me-centered. It's not about perfection. Sin's still present, and we get into that next week. But who has authority over your life has changed. It's no longer you. It's no longer culture, but the teaching on which you were committed. Let me pray. God, it truly is our worship that affects our actions. And for so long, the church has hammered on getting it right and and behaving properly and missed the more important parts about shaping our hearts towards seeking after you above all else. Maybe we too have fallen into the trap of the Pharisees. Maybe we too have presented ourselves as the solution that we can just fix the evils in our life and therefore we'll be better and accepted by God. 
But God, I pray that you would lead us to true repentance, which doesn't put me in charge of fixing me, but puts me looking at you and saying, God, you are God, and I will truly serve you. I will truly love you. I will truly focus on you. I will let you inform my desires. For this congregation today, I pray that our spiritual practices continuing to come to church, continuing to be involved daily in reading the word, continuing to encourage each other throughout the week on Slack, all of these things, God, I pray they would shape our desires and that those desires would be greater than the desires that the world and the culture offers. That we would have a new master, that it wouldn't be culture, but that it would be you. In all of our ways, let us acknowledge you In Jesus' name, amen.